Well, good morning, everyone. My name is John Miklas. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's great to have you here. If you're a guest here, we're honored that you've chosen to spend a part of your day with us today. Um, before I jump into the message, I want to give you a quick update uh, on our worship pastor, Johnny Brenner. Uh, many of you know he's in a very serious car accident uh, just a couple weeks ago. He's uh, in the Reading Rehab now in the process of recovering. So a couple questions that um, I get asked, we get asked often. One, is he awake? And uh, what we learned this week is there's eight levels of consciousness, and I experience multiple levels on Sunday morning when I'm speaking out here. So... Um, <laughs> So he's in, uh, he's in level six and seven, eight is fully conscious, so he's very close to being awake. Uh, the accident was three weeks ago today, um, and so he's very close to that stage. Uh, some of the things he was able to do this week, uh, he was able to speak, uh, he was able to, they plugged up his trach, he was able to form sentences, uh, uninitiated, I saw him walk with the assistance of a walker across part of a room, and so the therapists are, uh, they're amazed at his progress how quick and how fast it's accelerated. He has about four and a half hours of uh, therapy every day. And if you know anything about Johnny, he likes to pace himself. That's the way Johnny lives life, but they're not letting him pace himself. They are full pedal to the metal all the way down, moving full speed ahead, and he seems to be responding to that during that time. So thank you for your prayers, and um, we're very, very appreciative of all of those things, and we continue to pray for God to be at work. We're in the middle of this series entitled Bad Dates, Roommates, and Soulmates, and it's our goal to move past some bad dates, move past forgettable roommates, and to find a soulmate. And a few weeks ago, Roddy launched our series, <clears throat> and he raised some questions about me having a new occupation, uh, being employed by the Israeli army, but that's not true. But we did spend a couple weeks in Israel, my wife and I did, and uh, so uh, there's a picture of us on some camels, one way to get around in Israel. And uh, we also spent time with some ruins that were thousands of years old. And while well, in the U.S. they say stay away, in Israel they say tromp all over us. It's lasted 6,000 years, you're not going to hurt it. So we had a chance to do that and visit lots of amazing places that I'll tell you more about over the next few weeks. And uh, then, of course, we did get a chance to float in the Dead Sea as well. So, so we had a great time exploring the world that Jesus lived in. Uh, one person said it this way, they said, the more you understand the world of the Bible, the better you understand the words of the Bible. The more you understand the world of the Bible, the better you understand the words of the Bible. People have asked me, what surprised you the most? They told me, after you go, you'll never read the Bible the same way ever again. I was suspicious of that. I've been reading the Bible for a long, long time, studied it, teaching out of it. How could it change the way I read the Bible? And they were 100% right. 100% right. Do not read the Bible the way I used to because of this experience. So um, I hope to go back in the future and you will definitely be invited to come along and join me in that venture. But today we're going to talk about this subject, falling in love and staying in love. Falling in love and staying in love. And falling in love has never been easier in our call. Never been easier. Never been easier in the day that we are to in today. It's so easy to fall in love. There's 500 organizations waiting to help you fall in love and find your true love. All you have to do is create a profile, find an old picture, and airbrush it so you look better than you really are, and they will help you find your true love. But staying in love has never been more difficult. Staying in love has never been more difficult. With the distractions, the demands, uh, the exhaustion, and constantly being connected, not just to the one you love, but to everybody you knew and have ever known in your whole life, it's much more difficult than ever to stay in love. Falling in love is thrilling, exciting, and lots of new fun things to say to one another, like, don't you know CPR because you take my breath away? 
Um, or things like life without you is like a broken pencil because there's no point to it at all. Um, but staying in love, you guys are like, that was corny, John. You know, I hope you don't use that on your wife. So, uh, Staying in love is fulfilling. It's rewarding to find someone that will commit their life to you and say, I want to live life as long as our lives are, no matter where our lives take us. I want to do it with you. There's something incredibly rewarding about that. Falling in love just requires a pulse. Throw in a little bit of hormones and a little bit of emotion and you're in love. That's all it takes. But staying in love requires a plan. It takes effort and time and investment. Let me ask you this question. How many of you um, have a budget or you have some type of investment plan that you use? Let me see your hands. How many of you have a budget or some type of investment? Okay, look around the room. Most of the room, right? right? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands about this, but how many of you have a plan to grow and improve your relationship, your marriage? How many of you have a plan to grow and improve your relationship and your marriage? You see, most of us have a plan of what to do with our money, but most of us don't have a plan of what to do with our relationship. And lastly, falling in love makes you feel something, while staying in love requires you to do something. And today in our series on relationships, I'm going to mostly be talking, the content is mostly going to be geared a little bit more directly to those who are married, but the concepts we're going to talk about today, the principles that we're going to discuss, these are principles that affect every relationship that you have. One of the values at CCC that you'll see on the wall out there is entitled Healthy Relationships. Healthy Relationships. And the stuff we're going to talk about today, most of us have not learned this stuff. You say, why didn't we learn it? Did anybody take a class in high school or college on relationships? Anybody take a class? I don't, I got one up here, one out of, you know, 400 people, two maybe, you know. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. See, like, where do we learn how to do this stuff? Where do we learn how to do it? The truth is, what scientists tell us is, sociologists tell us is we learn this stuff from the people that we live with during the years when we're 8 to 12 years old. That's when we learn how to do relationships. We watch them. We don't know any better, and then that becomes our default me- mechanism in our brains. We're hardwired to do it the same way. The problem is most of us realize that, that way is not a good way. It's not a good I didn't know it when I was that little, but now I know it. It's not a good way. And so one of the things we're committed to here at CCC is helping you develop habits and patterns and practices for healthy relationships. We have an emotionally healthy relationships class, 35 people participating in that on Thursday nights, and we're learning and practicing ways to relate to one another in healthy ways. We just started our premarital counseling class to help couples learn how, as they're starting their new relationships, what are some ways, some habits and patterns they can build into that. And this morning what I want to do is I want to focus on one idea that can impact any relationship in your life. Any relationship in your life. Not just husband and wife. Parent, child, friend, coworker, student, um, parent. Um, it can change any of those relationships. And then we're going to take that idea and we're going to transition it into a question that can alter all of those relationships. When we talk about the word love, and Roddy introduced us to that subject a few weeks ago, when we talk about the word love, we often think of the word love as what part of speech, a noun or a verb? Which one? Noun or a verb? What do you think? Anybody going to take a guess? Most of the time it's a noun. I fell in what? Love. It was love at first sight. Love is in the air. Love is an open door. Somebody's saying, where does love is an open door? Where's that coming from? You know, all the, all the parents, they know Frozen. Older people, they're like, what in the world? I never heard that. 
but it's from Frozen. That's where it's from. But, but what is love in these statements? A noun or a verb? Which one? Come on, take a risk. Take a risk. It's a noun. You can say it. It's a noun. In these sentences, love is a noun. Love is a noun. And too often we view love a little bit like a swimming pool that we fall into or a chair that we fall out of. You know, and it's just a noun. But what we're going to discover is that love is not just something that you feel, but in order to build a relationship that's going to last, love must be something you do. Love must be something that you do. Jesus talked about love a lot. And he made love the center of his ministry. Everything he did, love was right at the center of it all. When God gave instructions to Moses about how the people in, of Israel were supposed to live, he gave them these laws. You, you might have heard of the Ten Commandments. Those were the initial ten, and there were 600 laws after that. But then they didn't always know what does the law mean or how does the law work in this situation. So they would go to the religious leaders, the rabbis and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. they say, how does this work, all the religious leaders of the day? Well, this is how it works in this situation, this situation, this situation. So they went from 10 to 600, several thousand rules in terms of how to live life. Most of them they couldn't even remember. They couldn't even remember. And then Jesus showed up on the scene, and he starts talking about something new. He doesn't talk about rules and regulations. He talks about, um, he talks about a relationship. And he's talking about a kingdom. And he's talking about a relationship with God as Father. You see, he didn't get hung up on the rules. It's not where Jesus spent his time. As a matter of fact, Jesus frustrated the religious leaders of that day because the religious police kept trying to catch him, and they were not able to catch him in breaking the law. He was a little bit like a grease pig, that every time they thought they caught him, he slithered away, and they couldn't figure out what to do. And so one group would try to catch him, and they would slide away, and they're like, all right, tap in, you're in. Okay, and the next group would try to catch him, nope, missed it, tap in, all right, we're in. And they would just went this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all throughout the Gospels. And one of those stories is in Matthew chapter 22 where hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, they're tapped in, all right, we're out, you're in, all right, Pharisees, your turn, you're up, all right, let's try to get him. So they said, all right, this time we're bringing in the experts. And so they brought in an expert in the law, and he tested Jesus with this question. What's an expert in the law? What are they called? A what? A lawyer. That's what they're called. Okay, everybody's non-responsive this morning. So an expert in the law is called a lawyer, Okay. And so he came prepped with the question. He was ready. He had in his hip, hip pocket, he was ready to get tagged in. He was ready to go at Jesus. He said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Greatest commandment. Out of all these 600, the 10, the 600, the thousands, what's the greatest one? And Jesus said what any Jew would have expected him to say. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We talk about his loving God fully. And that was true. Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's what it said. The beginning of the law, it said, in the book of Exodus, the beginning of the law, it said, this is well you, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love God with everything that you have. But then Jesus tacked the second one on. In the next verse, he said, and the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not less than, but equal to. Just like it. He said, for you to love your neighbor in the same way. And this is also found in the law in Leviticus 19. But these are in separate places. Like the one is like on page 2 or 3, and the other one's like on page 450. And Jesus took them both and slapped them together and said, these are the two most important things above all else. And the Jews thought, okay, I can love my neighbor. And you know who they thought their neighbors were? Other Jews, right? Other Jews. 
until Jesus told the story about this fellow called the Good Samaritan. Because the Jews thought they were supposed to just love everybody who was just like them, right? If you look at the people next to you, at the people in front of you, these are people generally just like you, right? Just like you. But the Good Samaritan turned that idea on its head and, and Jesus said, no, you're not just supposed to love the people who are just like you. You're supposed to love the people who are very different than you are. Who are nothing like you. Nothing like you. All of a sudden, Jesus' warmth and popularity was slowly starting to decline with one group. Because he said, this is not just about loving your neighbor, the people it's easy to love. This is about loving the people it is hard to love. It's hard to love. So this idea of love and loving others is something that was at the center of everything that Jesus talked about. Everything that he talked about. And so towards the end of when he was here on the earth, there's a story I want us to look at where he illustrates this. He doesn't talk about it. He illustrates it. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 13. John 13. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in the seat in front of you. It's on page 874. 874. You can follow along on your phone or tablet as well. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And Jesus was in Jerusalem. A couple weeks ago we were in John 11. He was making his way to Jerusalem. It was part of their triannual uh, trek to Jerusalem. Every Jewish man in the whole land of Israel was responsible to come to Jerusalem three times a year. And if he could, he would bring his whole family. And they would come for a feast, and then they would come for a week-long festival. That's, why, that's when they showed up in Jerusalem. And that's what was happening in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival that we talked about, the, the event and then the week-long celebration. John writes this, he said, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was about to take place. Having loved his owner in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus didn't quit. He didn't say, you know, I've loved them this far. Okay, the next one... This next stretch, it's going to be pretty rough. I don't know that they're going to make it. He said, no, I'm going to keep loving them all the way to the end. doesn't matter. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, this was not a surprise to Jesus. He knew this. He knew this. And John tells us this. But the disciples don't know this. The rest of the crew doesn't know it. But we know it, and Jesus knows it. And so they're having their evening meal. But someone was going to betray Jesus, and that someone was Judas. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he'd come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus had power, and he had a plan. He had power, and he had a plan. So what was the plan? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. As we read this, it, it, we kind of just glance right over that part. Um, but there's a whole lot more to this. Because in that culture, in that day, they didn't have nice paved roads with sidewalks on them, try to avoid the cars and the trucks and buses. But they had dirt roads. And um, people and livestock, they all traveled on the same road. And uh, one of the things we discovered in our trip is that there's uh, these paths that we were on all over uh, mountains and all throughout parts of Israel, they're traveled not only by people, but they're traveled by cattle, uh, they're traveled by mules, they're traveled by camels. And you think 
cow poop is big, you ought to see camel poop. It's like massive, you know. It's huge. Um, and, and, you know, we're walking with a group of us, and you're going up a mountain pass, and there's a big monstrous patty right in there. Well, you can, we, there's enough of us. We can go around it, you know. We can walk around it. We can avoid it. We can avoid it. Uh, but in that culture, in that day, it wasn't like that. I mean, it, they're coming into Jerusalem for the festival, and that means there's crowds. There's crowds. Some estimates are that the city of Jerusalem had about 10,000 people living in it, and somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 people would show up in the city for this event. I mean, it's like everybody had their whole family in town all at the same time in the community, okay? All right? Um, and so when they're traveling into this town, and, and one of the things we did is we spent time in the city of Jerusalem, these are very narrow streets. They're not like wide streets here, you know, and sidewalks on the side. No, they're about three people wide. One, two, three, you know, three people wide. That's how wide the streets are. And so, and if you're walking through these streets, and we experienced this numerous times, you're walking through the streets, you are shoulder to shoulder with three people. There's no room to dodge a monstrous camel patty in the middle of the road. You're just going right through it. That's what's happening. You're just going right through it. You know, and if that's not gross enough, they didn't have hiking boots in those days. Everybody wore open-toed shoes. So you're going right through it. It's squishing between your toes. You know, you're just, it's all, it's all mixed in, you know. Dirt and poop and everything, sweat, it's all mixed in all day long. That's what you're experiencing. And so that's what's the, the situation with the disciples as they come to this place. Now, the re, one of the things that was a part of every Jewish home is you would have someone at the door, a servant, and his sole responsibility was to wash everyone's feet. And there's a few stories about Jesus where this comes up, right? But they were in a rented room in a borrowed place. There was nobody at the door to clean the people's feet. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus demonstrated incredible humility and incredible compassion, but it's even more than that. Because if you remember in that first verse, Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. Jesus knew that Peter was about to deny him. Jesus knew that his disciples were about to abandon him. And Jesus knew that later Thomas would deny that he even rose from the dead. Doubt that he even rose from the dead. And Jesus still chose to take off his robe, to wrap a towel around his waist, and then to wash his disciples' feet. This was not just about a custom of the day. This was not just about hygiene and somebody's got to do it, so plug your nose and get at it. You know, this wasn't about that. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples something he had been talking about for weeks and months and years. He goes on to say in verse 15, I've set an example that I want you to do what I have done. Do what I have done. Now, some of you are thinking, John, I just can't handle that. If you think we're going to do foot washing here, I just can't go for that. You know, not in that. Even if you've got boots on you know, this morning, can't do that. No, that's not what I don't think Jesus said. That's not what he said. Because a few verses later, he says this. He says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. A new commandment. You remember the first commandment? The first commandment was to love who? The greatest commandment. Love who? Of God, right? With everything we got. All right? Fully. The second commandment was to love who? Your neighbor, right? And he says, I'm going to give you a new one. A new one. This one they had never heard before. It wasn't anywhere at all those thousands of rules and thousands of walls. It wasn't anywhere. This is a brand new one. He says, I want you to do this for each other. For each other. 
I not only want you to love the God who's who's given you life and made everything possible in this life, I want you to love the people that are totally different than you and you would never imagine loving them, but I'm going to put them right smack in front of you and right next to you and right behind you and I want you to love them. But last of all, I want you to love the people who are just like you. And that's the one another. That's the one another. And how do I want them to love? As I have what? As I have loved, say it with me, as I have loved you. That's how I want you to love. As I have loved you. You know, love is not just a feeling. Love is not just when you feel like loving. Love is not just something that floats in the air and lands on your hair at head like, you know, pixie dust every once in a while. Love is not just to be a noun, but love is supposed to be a verb. Love is when I say I'm willing to get down on my knees and get dirty, and put someone else's needs ahead of my own. That's what love says. You see, that's what it takes to stay in love, not just fall in love. That's what it takes to stay in love. You say, but John, that's so unnatural, and I would be the first to say it is. Because most of the time, whose agenda do I put first? Mine. Most of the time. I put my agenda first. And when life and circumstances and people get in my way, I get angry because I don't get my way. I have a blocked goal that's not being met. But the truth is, we're born this way, right? Anybody have to teach kids this? Nobody has to teach kids this. There was a dad who came up with this website. He was kind of frustrated about um, him trying to do something good for his kids and them not handling it very well. And so he came up with this website, reasonmysonischrying.com. And so he posted some pictures of these things that were happening with a little bit of explanation. So one of the things is, I asked him to pick up the towel and he threw it on the floor. That's all I asked him. Nothing, not, not that serious, but there's another one. He offered me a bite of his pretzel and I took it. <laughs> He's melting down. I just did what he asked me to do. There's one more. There was frosting on both sides of her Oreo. That's all it was. That's all it was. But she's melting down because she didn't get her way. She didn't get her way. You know, and I'd like to think that we grow out of this. But the truth is, if we're honest, we don't. We don't. But instead of melting down in a puddle of tears, we hide it. We deceive it. We sneak around with it. And so where does our selfish side, our demanding side, our cry at the drop of a hat side, who does that show up with the most? People that don't know us? Total strangers? Even your small group? Probably not. Shows up with your spouse or your kids or a close friend, right? That's where it shows up. The truth is we often find ourselves giving less and demanding and expecting more. And when we don't, want what we, what, and when we don't get what we want, we try to control the situation and we crank it tighter and crank it tighter and crank it tighter. And Jesus says, will you give it up? Will you give it up and make this not about you and make this about other people? Paul in the book of Ephesians says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And in the book of Ephesians is a letter that he wrote to the first century Christians. And as he wrote this letter to them, he's trying to explain to them how they were supposed to relate to one another differently. They were trying to learn in the first century just like we are today. And so before he talks about husbands, you do this, and wives, you do this, that's what he's going to talk about in the next few verses. He says, before you get into that, there's one overriding principle I want you to keep in, in your mind, and that's submit to one another. Submit to one another. Make their hopes, wishes, dreams what's important 
in your life? The first question is, do you even know what they are? Do you know what your spouse's hopes, wishes, and dreams are? Do you know what they are? And if so, are you willing to serve them and find a way to try to make those happen? Sometimes people will say to me, well, John, doesn't it say that wives are supposed to submit? It does. And doesn't it say husbands are supposed to love? Yes, it does. But it says this before all of them. It says this before all of them. It says you are supposed to be about trying to out-submit and out-serve each other. He raises the bar in verse 25 to husbands. He says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I would suggest, I don't have scientific evidence to prove this, but I would suggest this whole idea is harder for men than it is for women. In most cases. In most cases. And so I think that's why God didn't have to say this again to women. They already got it. But he had to say it again to us men to remind us how important this is. And he says, guys, you've got to be willing to, to give up everything. And are you committed to trying to outserve your wife? Are you committed to trying to outserve your wife? Gerald Rogers, in his book, uh, Marriage, What I Wish I Knew, said this, marriage is not a 50-50. Divorce is a 50-50. Marriage has to be 100-100. It's not dividing everything in half, but giving everything that you've got. Paul goes on to explain in the end of this verse to tell us why to do this. He says, you don't do this out of guilt. You don't do this out of shame. But he says, you do this out of reverence and devotion and love for Christ. He said, you don't do this because the other person deserves it. They may not deserve it. You don't do this because the other person earned it. They may not have earned it at all. He says, you do this for one reason. This is what Jesus did. He was willing to give up his life for people. And he said, I'm going to choose you. And I'm going to rescue you. And I'm going to save you. And I'm going to adopt you. And I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to do all of that for you. Even if you don't ask or don't want it. I'm going to make that available to you. Now, can you serve the most important people in your life. Paul didn't say do it because they deserve it. He said don't do it because they've earned it. He said do it because this is what Jesus has done for you. I heard a story this past week of a guy by the name of E.V. Hill who was a pastor for years out in, uh, the California, out in California, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist. And uh, Tragically, he lost his wife around the age 50 and I heard something that he, he said at her funeral. At our funeral, he told this story. He said, uh, when we were young and just getting involved in a church, we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, it was tough to pay all the bills. Um, and I came home from a long day at work one, day, one night, and I walked in the door, and, and, and the lights were all off, and, and my wife had this beautiful table set up in the kitchen for us um, with a great meal sitting on the table and candlelight. She had made a candlelight dinner for us. And I, and I was so excited, I was so thrilled that she had thought about coming and doing something special for us. I said, you know, hon, I need to go use the bathroom. I'll be back in in a minute. Let me go take care of that, and then I just want to spend this time with you. As he went in the bathroom and went to use the bathroom, he flipped the light switch on, and he thought, and the light didn't come on. He thought, oh, that's kind of odd. Maybe the ball burnt out. I'll take care of that a little bit later. And he proceeded to take care of what he needed to, and he came out in the hallway, and as he, as he walked down the hallway about to go down, he just flipped on the light out of habit just so he could see where he was going. And as he flipped on the light, that light didn't come on either. And at that moment, he turned around and he saw his wife standing right behind him with tears pouring down her face. 
And she said to him, I just didn't have enough money to stretch to pay the electric bill. In that moment, he got a glimpse of what love being a verb and not being a noun was all about. She could have easily criticized him and said, aren't you going to take care of us? That's your job as a man, as a husband. She could have easily complained and said, you just need to get another job and make some more money. But instead, she chose to find a way to serve her husband in a very difficult situation. And so I want to take this idea of love not being a noun but a verb, and I want to put in a question for you. And the question is this. The question is, how can I help you or how can I serve you? How can I help you or how can I serve you? If you're not sure you'll remember that, pull your phones out, take a picture of that, because I want you to ask this question to someone in your life once a day for the next seven days. Once a day for the next seven days. Preferably if you're married to your spouse, if you're a parent to your kids, to a close friend. By the way, middle school and high school students, when you ask your mom and dad this, um, two things will happen. The first thing is they'll faint, and then you won't have anything that you have to do. Okay, Or they'll be in such shock they'll be speechless. And you're like, okay, I guess you don't have anything, and you'll walk away. Okay, But this is not just for the adults, not just for the people who are married. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. You can ask this question to a coworker. You can ask this question to an extended family member. You can ask this question to a neighbor. You can ask this question to anybody. Preferably the people that are closest to you in your life. Preferably them. And what's going to happen? Some of them might say, you know, that was really kind of you to ask, but I'm good. I'm good. I don't have anything that I need. Thanks for asking. And you're like, okay, got out of that one. Got one down, you know. Uh, some of you, someone's going to say, you know, I'm kind of going through this. Do you have a couple minutes just to listen? Yeah, I can do that. I can sit and listen. Uh, someone, some of them, you're going to hear what's going on. You might offer a word of encouragement. Um, some of you might hear, yeah, uh, could you take out the trash or would you mind emptying the dishwasher? You're like, okay, I think I can do that. I think I can do that. Um, some of you might hear a problem that you're able to jump in and solve. But what this question says is this question says your agenda and your needs are bigger and more important than mine. It's pretty amazing to be on the receiving end of this, isn't it? People offer that to me. I'm like, wow, thanks. Thanks. Sometimes I don't even, I've not even done anything to really deserve it, and they offer it to me. I'm like, thanks. It means a lot. Someone does that for me. And so imagine what it means when you do that for others. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, that's a great idea, John, but I'm going to do that as soon as he starts. Or some of you are thinking, well, I'm going to do that as soon as she starts, and if she's willing to do it and I'm willing to do it, and we say, go, then I'll do it. But if it's all got to be me, or I, I'm not sure I want to do that. And the reality is, is that's where you are. You're going to be at a stalemate. You're going to be a stalemate. Relationships do not stay static. They aren't, they aren't stopped at a fixed point in time. Relationships are always either growing or they're, what do you think the other option is if they're not growing? What are they doing? They're dying, right? They're dying. Relationships do not stay static. It's not a point in time. And so you have a choice to make. You can say, I'm going to choose to do this regardless of what they say or do, and we're going to talk about those responses in just a minute. But if you choose a stalemate, you're choosing to put your relationship at great risk. Because what happens when you stop putting the needs of others in front of yourself, you run the risk of your relationship um, becoming further and further fractured, further and further separated, and you run the relationship of losing something that you treasure 
greatly. The challenge is when you least want to ask this question is likely when you need to ask it the most. When you least, or the person, let me put that phrase, the person you least want to ask this question to. A bunch of you got someone right in the, their, their face just came to your minds as soon as I put this up there. The person you least want to ask this question to is likely the one you need to ask it to the most. You see, this, is a sta- this statement is a game changer, a relationship changer, a lifesaver. If you're dating someone and they never ask, hey, how can I serve you? How can I help you? Uh, you better kind of put the brakes on things. And if you're engaged and the other person never says this to you, hey, how can I help you? What can I do for you? You really need to rethink this. Because if you think it's going to get better after the I do's, I, it's not. It's not. And if you're in a marriage, you need to model it for your spouse, whether they do it or not. You know, as we close, I want to give you a couple objections that some of you are, these are racing through your minds. If I do this, they might take advantage of me. Yep. Absolutely. And you know what? You're in good company. You're in good company. Remember who Jesus did it for? He did it to Judas. And what did Judas do? Betrayed him. He did it for Peter. What did Peter do? He denied him. I don't even know the guy. He did it for the rest of the disciples. They abandoned him. They abandoned him. So the truth is, Jesus loved others and they did all this to him. And you might get that same response. But the other response you might get is it just might start to soften and melt someone's heart that's hardened towards you right now. There's another one. I don't see how this will make me happy in your marriage. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to find, mar- you're not going to find happiness in controlling your, mar- your relationship. You're only going to find it when you serve and put others ahead of yourself. If I do this, it will feel awkward and fake. You are absolutely correct. You are absolutely correct. Um, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have ever started a new workout program or exercise routine, and you're watching somebody on a DVD, or you're watching somebody in the gym, and they're doing all these moves, and you're trying to do them, and you're tripping over your hands and feet, and it looks kind of funny, okay? I won't ask for a show of hands, but um, you know, anytime we do something new, it feels awkward, right? Anytime you try to work on your muscles or grow and develop something, it's going to feel awkward. Is it going to feel fake? It might feel fake. But take some time for those serving muscles to develop. And you know what's going to happen? This phrase will start to roll off your tongue naturally. Roll off your tongue naturally. And I don't know about you, but what would it be like to have this kind of a culture in your home? What would it be like to have this kind of a culture where you're constantly saying to each other, to your family, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Here's another one. If I do this, I won't be taken serious. So they're going to say, you're just doing this because John told you to. And you're going to say, yep, you're right. That's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm doing it. (laughs) That's why I'm doing it. They might roll their eyes. Yep. They might respond cynically. Ah, it's not going to do any good, you know. you got a choice. you got a choice. Um, What do you have to lose? Might get a little bit of joking and teasing. But what do you have to gain? What do you have to gain if it helps your relationship 
move toward, help you in a relationship, move towards one another, and help you to cultivate a relationship where you are not just surviving, but you're thriving in the, in the relationship with the person you love. So the challenge this week is to make love a verb and to do that by saying, how can I help you? How can I help you? If you think about what's at stake, Jesus said that if you love each other this way, everybody around you is going to know that you follow me. That's what Jesus said. That's what he said. It's going to give people a heart, a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. You remember why Jesus came? He said he came what? Not to, serve, not to be served, but to what? To serve. To serve. Before we close, I, I just want to say one word to a select group of people in the room this morning. Um, and those of you that are either gifted in serving or you recognize that you have codependent tendencies. Okay? I want to talk to you for a minute. Because some of you are sitting there thinking, John, I do this every day, all day long to everybody in my life, and I'm kind of getting tired of it. And you're telling me to keep doing it. What I'm telling you to do is I'm telling you to do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. Did Jesus do this 24-7? He did not. He took breaks. He paused. He went away with his father where no one else was around for him to know how much he was loved and valued and treasured and beloved and it didn't have to do anything to create his sense of value and worth. Jesus, even at times when people wanted things of him, we looked at this two weeks ago, when his good friends uh, Martha and Mary said, Jesus, you've got to come and take care of our brother. And he said, I'm not coming. Yet. I'm not coming. Yet. And so for a very select group of you that struggle with this, where either you feel compelled to do this, you can't say no to anyone, or you find your sense of value and worth in doing this for everybody all the time, my challenge to you is to do this the way Jesus did it. To do this the way Jesus did it. Because he did it very differently than likely those of us that do, struggle with this do. Lastly, I think for each of us, it's an opportunity for us to express the love that we received from Jesus. One of the things we say all the time around here is you cannot offer what you haven't received. You cannot offer what you haven't received. And so as we sing these songs and as we sit and reflect on God's incredible, amazing, overwhelming, unending love for us, He says, can you offer that to someone else in your life? Maybe someone who doesn't deserve it. Maybe someone who you're going to have to say these words through gritted teeth the first thousand times. You know. But eventually, you'll be able to say it with the heart that Jesus has for you and to say, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? I'm going to ask you to close your, bow your heads and close your eyes. And As we do, I just want to challenge you to just make that your simple prayer to God this morning. Say, God, I, I know what you want me to do. And for many of you, you likely know who he wants you to do this with. Who he wants you to do this with. And would you just humble your heart and say, God, I'm willing. I need your help. 
to make it a reality. God, when we read that story of Jesus washing the feet, it's, it's clearly a humble act. No debating that. Clearly a selfless act. No debating that. But then to figure out, how do I do just what He did? And I would suspect, God, most of us know exactly who we need to ask that question to this week. Who we need to say, am I willing to lay down my pride, lay down my ego, lay down my need to be served, take off my jacket, grab a towel, put it over my arm, and say, how can I serve you? Jesus, you did this in an amazing way. Not only did it to picture it for the disciples, but... In just a few short hours, you then were willing to lay down your entire life. And you say to us, could you lay down a, a few minutes? Maybe an hour? Could, could you lay down a little inconvenience? To love someone the way I have loved you. So God, as we walk towards that this week, as we seek to enter into that this week, we do so knowing that... Um, we can't do this in our own strength. We need your grace. We need your compassion. We need your love. We can't do this on our own. We need you, Jesus.